Amen. We're going to be in Second uh, Timothy chapter one, verses eight through eighteen this morning. So Second Timothy chapter one, verses eight through eighteen. As we continue to walk through uh, the letter of Second Timothy, uh, last week we we just started into uh, the letter in verses one through seven of chapter one, and we looked at uh, first of all the, this kind of the special relationship between. Paul and Timothy, right? So that the Paul is this great uh, early missionary of the church who has traveled all across the known world at this point, or uh, all of my, uh, Asia Minor and into Rome. Uh, he's been planting churches, but Timothy was somebody who came with Paul in his missionary journey. So he was a co-laborer of Paul. He was uh, one who accompanied him all over the place as churches were planted and started. And then Paul left him or sent him to Ephesus to stay there. Uh, and so that's where, when we looked at First Timothy, it's that first letter of, of Paul encouraging Timothy what to do while he's in Ephesus, how to help establish and give the church a good foundation. And now in Second Timothy, as we talked about last week, this is Paul's last letter. Paul is in prison. He is anticipating uh, death. It's coming pretty quick. And he's giving, and this is kind of like the last kind of instructions, encouragement, correction, uh, push uh, of momentum to Timothy before Paul dies. Uh, and as we walk through the letter, we're also going to see that it's also Paul's encouragement for Timothy to come and see him in Rome, in prison, before Paul's death. Um, and last week, when we finished up in verse 7, Paul finished with this encouragement to Timothy, at least in that section of the letter, to fan into flame the gift that God had given to Timothy, and to be reminded that God hasn't given Timothy or any other believer a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-control, right? That's kind of where we, we finished up. And so chapter two, uh, 1, verses 8 through 18 is going to pick right up off of this idea of, of what, do you, what is Timothy supposed to do in fanning this into into flame, the gift of God that that God has given him. What is Timothy supposed to do with this uh, spirit of power and love and self-control? What is this going to look like? Or what is Paul's next encouragement for Timothy in light of this? So if you'll look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So verse 8, he launches right into it. He says, therefore, uh, and, and therefore tells us it's following after what just happened, right? So Paul has just told Timothy, God hasn't given you, Timothy, a, a, a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-control. Because of that, don't be ashamed. Now, if we just stopped there, we could go like, well, what is Timothy ashamed of? Is Timothy ashamed of himself? Is he ashamed of, of like his, his, his age? Is he ashamed of his height? Is he ashamed of his weight? Is he ashamed of his job? Is he ashamed of his family? Is he ashamed of where he lives? Is he ashamed of his house? Is he ashamed of his carriage? Is he ashamed of his donkey? Is he ashamed of his cat? Like, if we just stop there, it could be like, it could be open for broad interpretation, couldn't it? But he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And you go, that's kind of a, again, kind of a strange phrase. The testimony of our Lord. Another way we could say is, do not be ashamed of the truth or the good news of the Lord. So the thing that, that Timothy could have fear of is the repercussions of following and living in light of the good news of who Jesus is. And we know, we go, well, how do you know that that's what Paul is encouraging Timothy not to be ashamed of? Because the second part there is, Paul says, uh, don't be ashamed about the testimony, uh, testimony about our Lord, and also don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. And you go, well, those two things don't seem to have anything to do with each other, do they? Don't be ashamed about the good news of who Jesus is, and by the way, don't be ashamed of me, Paul. But if we drop down, we see why is Paul in prison? He says uh, uh, in verse, lost it, hold on, verses 11 and 12. He says, uh, because of the gospel, right, we're going to look at that in a few minutes. He says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, and this is why I suffer as I do. Now, can you imagine, would it be possible that if you had a dear friend that went to prison, that you might have uh, some feelings of shame if somebody were to bring them up to you? Possibly? Or we could phrase it a different way. Does somebody who has gone to jail or gone to prison have a certain stigma of shame upon them? Right? And, and Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, I am in chains, don't be ashamed of me. Not only does he say that, but then in verse 15 he says, You're aware that all who are in Asia are what? Basically, ashamed of me. Where is Ephesus? It's in Asia. So Paul is writing to Timothy who is in Asia, and he's saying, Hey, you know how most everybody has turned their back on me. And you know they've turned their back on me because I'm in prison, and there's a certain stigma of being attached to me that they are ashamed of. But why is Paul in prison? Is Paul in prison for embezzling funds? No. Is Paul in prison for insider trading? No. Is Paul in prison for stealing stuff from people? Is Paul in prison for uh, his work in, in, in persecuting and murdering Christians all the way back when he started in ministry? No, although that would be like, that would probably be the, the right reason to be in prison. Why is Paul in prison? He says, I'm in prison for being a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of God's word. I'm in prison because I've identified myself with the good news of who Jesus is. I'm in prison because I've taught simply and clung to simply who Jesus is. 
And so this, this twofold thing says, don't be ashamed about the good news, which also is keying on, if, if Paul is in prison and he is suffering for the gospel, he's encouraging Timothy to do. Not just to not be ashamed of it, but, but it, we're keyed in on the very next phrase. Don't be ashamed of the testimony, uh, testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. But share in suffering for the gospel. This is a simple question. You probably don't even have to raise your hand because I think I know the answer. How many of you like to suffer? How many of you like somebody telling you, hey, it's time to share in suffering? Not, not really. I mean, probably what comes to mind if I say, hey, we're, the, later this afternoon, we're all going to go out and we're going to suffer. It's voluntary. We're going to meet out at the soccer field. We're going to go suffer. Well, we just spread that out more broadly to our community. Hey, we want you to come and join in our suffering. Open invitation. Everyone is welcome. <laughs> you didn't get the memo. That's, like, probably, need to, probably need to alter the message. That's, that's probably not going to attract a whole lot of people to say, share in suffering. It raises kind of an interesting question, though. I mean... Does anybody, does anybody go through all of life without suffering? All right, we have phrases for this in a way, right? No pain, no... Hey, right, right, you guys know that one. There's an aspect, the, the, the flip side of this is like, we, we, we celebrate the idea of perseverance, right? Like, and those who... Like, I, I like sports. Sports is kind of where I go with, with my brain. Um, right now, NBA Finals, Stanley Cup, so if you like hockey, you like basketball, or if you, you follow any team that makes it to the highest level of what they do, do they get there without suffering? Do they get there without putting themselves through the ringer in order to get to where they want to be? What about people who achieve the highest level of success in their workplace? Do they get there without persevering and without suffering, without going through some things? Does anybody really, I mean, maybe outside of like, um, I don't know, I, I forgot the term for it. But anyway, out, outside of somebody who just inherits a Fortune 500 company without doing anything, does anybody really attain much without suffering? So can I, can I pitch you a, an idea here that, like, that may not be comfortable for us? I don't think it's so much that we have an issue with suffering but the question is, what are we worth, or what do we deem worthy of our suffering? What am I, what am I, what am I valuing as worthy of my suffering? Most of us, in general conversation, probably don't have a whole lot of hesitation in letting our political views be known, even when they're unpopular. Most of us don't probably have an issue with telling somebody our personal opinion on some matter of finance, even if it's not real popular to the other person. We're willing to get some flack back for all kinds of ideas. 
But what about sharing in suffering for the gospel? Is the truth of who Jesus is worthy of my suffering? Is it worthy of my discomfort? Is it worthy of consequences? Now, now, hear me really quickly. Last week, we, we ended on this note that the, like when we talk about a spirit of, of power and love and self-control, one of the things we're talking about is a boldness to a verbal witness of who Jesus is. And then right on the back end of that, then Paul says, and by the way, this probably invites suffering. And an important question that I think you and I need to address in our own hearts really early on, or this morning, hopefully, if we've never done so before, is this question. Does God allow his people to suffer for the gospel? Does my theology allow for this idea that God allows his people to suffer for his good news sake? Because here's my, my, uh, maybe one of my ideas here. Maybe it's just something that, 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 that I, I see, and maybe you're, you're going to tell me afterwards, like, wow, you've read the room entirely wrong as far as uh, Christianity in America in your entire growing upness. I think so many times we have believed, we've been taught, we've embraced an idea that God does not want us to suffer. That suffering, in fact, is a sign that God is displeased with us rather than God is allowing us to experience more of who he is through circumstances that cannot ultimately defeat us. But I I would ask you this way. How much of your life and my life is spent on trying to avoid suffering? Not just for the gospel, but in any way, shape, or form. How much of our life is spent trying to avoid difficulty and circumstances we don't want to encounter? How much of our life is spent on insulating ourselves from discomfort? And then it would probably be no wonder... Why we, we kind of shy away from the idea of like, I don't want to suffer for Jesus. I don't suffer for, I don't suffer for anything else willingly. Unless it benefits me, possibly. But Paul, notice like Paul is saying, hey, hey, Timothy, like point blank range. I am suffering. I am in prison for this that we believe. And I want you to share in it. That's not just a message for Timothy. That's a message for you and me, too. Paul, who has given his life to making Jesus known in places where Jesus hadn't been known, who is now anxiously, if you want to say that, looking forward to execution from a Roman government, is inviting Timothy and others to share in the same kind of suffering. And I, and I think part of the reason why we go, I don't know that Jesus would want me to do that, is because most of our, our favorite Bible stories are the stories where God delivers people out of suffering. Right? And God has the perfect ability to do that. We think about uh, just the book of Daniel. How many, like, how many of you, like as a kid or even now, your, one of your favorite things to look at in God's history is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace? 
And you can just picture, right? Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fiery furnace. Like guards are dying because the heat is so high. And they're just walking around. He's like, whoa, I see a fourth guy in the fire. And I don't even like, whoa, get him out of there. That's awesome picture of God's deliverance. Actually saving his people out of suffering because, why? They wouldn't bow down to another God. Or they wouldn't give their worship to another. They were suffering for God's namesake. Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den because he, he has the audacity to only pray to the Lord and not pray to anybody that they tell him to. And God shuts the mouths of the lions. Like, we love that. I love that. But then we get to the New Testament one, even in the Old Testament. How many of us love, like, how many of you would love to be Uriah? who dies because he practices his righteousness before the king who is trying to cover up his sinfulness. And he will not shirk what he believes to be right, and he dies for it. I love the redemption piece where David gets confronted with it, and he repents, and he turns away from it. I don't really like to dwell on the fact that Uriah dies because of his faithfulness. And then we, we fast forward to the New Testament, and, and we have guys like Stephen who get stoned to death. James who gets put to death, like really early in the, in the history of the early church, right after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We have situations where, where Peter and John get delivered out of the Sanhedrin, and they, they return back and they continue to pray for boldness. We have situations of, of Paul and Barnabas being delivered out of the jail through an earthquake. But we also have a picture of Paul being stoned outside of a city and left for dead. We also have pictures of, of Paul being shipwrecked and in danger from all sorts of people at sea and travel, like Paul lays out his, his issues. He, he's, been, he's been whipped and left short of dead how many times? And then ultimately he's beheaded. And Peter is crucified upside down. John alone out of the early disciples dies of old age and the rest are put to death. And yet we come to with this idea that God would never allow us to be in an uncomfortable or dangerous situation. So one of the things I would encourage us to do this morning is, 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 is take our idea of suffering back to Scripture and say, is what I believe about suffering for who Jesus is, is that consistent with what God actually says in his word? Now, that sounds like that we're all, we're all uh, adequately depressed yet. You're called to share in suffering. But he says, for the gospel, by the power of God. And I, and I want to just lay another claim that I think is right there in the text for us. You and I cannot suffer for the gospel apart from God's grace and apart from God making it possible for us to do so. Because our every inclination would be to avoid. Apart from God enabling this in us, like this is, this is something that God produces in us. It's not something that we just, okay, now I'm ready. But then the second question that we ought to ask 
is what is, like, so if Paul says, share in suffering for the gospel, it would be important that we ask ourselves, what is the gospel? Is the gospel just an idea? Like, are we to suffer for an idea? Is it just a theory? Is it an opinion? Is it just an opinion among many opinions? Is it just one worldview among many? What is the gospel? And that's where I love that Paul immediately goes into just a really quick summary of what the gospel is. In verses 9 and 10. Talking about by the power of God, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Notice this, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So that's the question, why Why was life and immortality necessary? Why was it necessary for him to abolish death? Like, what circumstances brought that to bear? In verse 10, if he abolished death, it carries the idea and it, and, it, and it hammers home this idea that you and I, apart from God's intervention, we are dead in our sin. All right? So all of Scripture is, like, this is a condensed version of Scripture. So if you're like, I've never read any of the Bible, explain it to me. The, the Bible is explaining from beginning to end God's plan of bringing hope and salvation for you and for me. So in the beginning, all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, we see that God is the creator of all things. He creates all things perfectly, without blemish. Everything is right and good. And as part of his creation, he creates the first man and the first woman to know him and to walk with him. And they do this in, like, in, in a perfect relationship without any problems. Now, when I ask the question, is the gospel just an idea, or is it a theory, or is it... The Bible is explaining to us what has taken place in reality. What is realistically actually true. So God has actually realistically created all things. He has actually created us to know him and to walk with him. But, just like the first people, you and I do not pursue God the way that we ought to. In fact, we we go after our own agenda and our own ideas. And if we could just illustrate this for you, if you bear with me being kind of goofy for a minute. Maybe it's not goofy, I don't know. Uh, it'll be outside the ordinary if you're like, wow, you just, like, anyway, just a second. What we often think of the gospel is, or what we think of the means of salvation, is that God is holding out salvation and it is determined upon me to just be good enough, to think good enough thoughts, to act right enough, to treat other people well enough. And if you can just imagine, it's like, so, so like imagine that our, our table here is salvation. And if I do all the right things, then I can move towards it. And whenever I have a bad thought or bad actions, I back up away from it. And life is just this constant going back and forth. And hopefully, maybe I could be good enough at the end to have it. Can I show you what biblically is actually reality? Okay, you just give me half a second. That'd be weird. I'm going to disappear for like 10 seconds. It's okay. Like I told you, it's, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit weird. It's okay. So what is biblically true of us is that because of sin, we are separated completely from God. Okay, now you imagine, we have plexiglass right here, fiberglass, whatever you want to call it. You just imagine this is all the way up to the ceiling, and there is no way out. 
right? You and I are stuck, separated away from a holy God. And have you ever seen a fly that is stuck, like, inside of a window? Like, what does it do? Buzz, buzz, buzz. Smack, 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 right? Trying to get out every way it can. The window is closed, so can the fly get out? No. This is the state of us stuck in our sin. We are completely separated from a holy God without any way on our own to get out of the box. Try as we might. We can do all of the right things and all of the right thoughts, and we're just bumping around and not getting out. And yet we think we can be good enough to somehow bridge the gap. And at the end, well, I tried my best so God will be gracious to me. Okay, what it says is the Lord Jesus made, was made manifest in his appearing. In other words, Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh and entered in to sinful humanity with us. He entered the box. And while he was in the box, while he was in human likeness, he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He did all of the right things with all of the right thoughts, with all of the right acti- actions, with all of the right motives, all of the time, without any wrongdoing, without any sin, without any fault. And then he was put to death, right? And it's kind of, it, catch this, I'm in the baptistry for a reason. He was put to death But death could not hold him, and on the third day he rose in victory. Which is why scripture can say he abolished death, because death could not hold him. So then the picture of the gospel is, for everyone who trusts in him, they likewise are dead in their sin, but they're raised to new life with him. Not just to stay in the box dead for all time, but to walk in newness of life and come out of death into a new life with Christ. Okay, coming back out. Just for the record, super glad they didn't have water in it today. That would have been awkward. <laughs> be a little bit wetter. Not because of what we could do. And that's what, notice what he says. Not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Because God desired to see us put into a right relationship with him. And it comes through Jesus who was put to death, who was raised to life, and and who ascended back into heaven, and who now reigns in victory. Now, you go, what does this have, like, so, so what does this have to do with suffering? Paul says this message of Jesus coming for sinful people, like you and for me, and giving them new life in him to walk with him and to live with him in a right way. It says, Timothy, this is what you are, this message is what you are to suffer for. And you know, why in the world would that message in the entire world, why would that bring suffering? That doesn't seem, that seems kind of odd to us. Like, that seems like the best news ever. Why would that bring suffering? When was the last time you shared this good news with somebody and they said no to it? And they maybe didn't just have a mild, no, I'm not interested. They might have had a visceral, I'm not interested in that. Carry that across, again, maybe this is too bold of a statement. But I would urge you, like, go back and just, I don't know, do a Google search on, on persecution of the church throughout church history. You and I 
where we live, in the age in which we live, have lost a grip on the fundamental truth that the gospel brings suffering. And I think we have bought into the lie that suffering is not intended for us. To the extent that which we go, if I perceive that this will bring discomfort or suffering, I will keep my mouth shut. And yet, what does Paul encourage Timothy to do? Share in suffering. What does he, like, what does he have in mind for Timothy to do when he's telling him share in suffering? Would it be that much different than what Paul is himself experiencing when he says, for this I was appointed an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher? Which is why I suffer as I do. In other words, Timothy, you are to be a herald or a messenger of this good news. And likewise, you ought to suffer this way. Maybe not in the same exact way, but you're not, your life is not free from suffering. In other words, like the, 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 the weight and the consequence of sharing God's word and being uh, committed to him in a way that, that we invite consequences. Not for the, and I want to be careful here, not for the way that we deliver the good news, because some people experience pushback because they're just jerks. Right? Sometimes we can be jerks when we share the gospel. Sometimes we can, like, so it's not the, the message that people are rejecting it. To, it might be us because we're not comfortable enough to just let the gospel be the offending party. Something's going to offend, let it be the gospel. Don't let it be you. But all at the same time, don't sit on the gospel thinking, well, I don't want to offend. And hey, I, I get it. We live in a world that constantly wants to be offended. But we also have this encouragement and this command even to share, not just in the suffering, but in the stewardship of the good news. And the question would be for us, another question is, for, for Jesus, done, it might be important to ask why. Why am I not willing to suffer for this? If I could be just, I don't know, step on toes for half a second. Maybe it shouldn't step on toes, but it might. If I'm willing to suffer for a political party but not Jesus, why? I think it would be the, 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 because of where we live, this might be the minority, but if I'm willing to suffer for Joe Biden but not for Jesus, why? If I'm willing to suffer for Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or whoever else runs but not for Jesus, Why? If I'm willing to suffer for my favorite sports team, but I'm not willing to suffer for Jesus, why? Most of us, like, and we would see it as a noble thing, I'm willing to suffer for my family. Well, that's, that's probably a, a worth, worthy thing to suffer for. But if I'm, more, uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm willing to suffer for my family, but not for Jesus, what does that say about my priorities? If I'm willing to suffer for my retirement, but I'm not willing to suffer for Jesus, why? If I'm willing to suffer for my job, but I'm not willing to suffer for Jesus, why?
Is it because I don't fully understand who he is? Or am I just apathetic to who he is? Has my heart grown cold to the truth of who Jesus is? And notice what Paul says right after this. He says, I'm suffering as I do. In other places he says, this is why I'm in chains. But notice what he says, but I. So he says, he says Timothy, don't be ashamed of, the, of the, the testimony of the word or of the Lord. But notice what he says, I am not ashamed. And you go, why is Paul not ashamed? And he gives twofold reason. He says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. I, I know the one who I'm believing in. And notice that the, the who is not a set of ideas. It's not a set of principles. It's not even a set of convictions. It is a person. The person of Jesus. I know whom I believed. Not only do I, do I know whom I believe, but then the second thing is I am convinced. Notice that Paul is in prison for the gospel. If there was ever a person who, who should, in this moment, be having a victim mentality. Uh, poor me. I don't like, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know why I'm in here. I don't know, like everybody's just treating me poorly and they're not doing anything right to me. All they want to do is let me suffer. Like, I'm Paul. I've never done anything wrong. But instead he says, this is why I suffer as I do and, and I'm not ashamed of my suffering. Even though everybody else has turned away from me, all in Asia have abandoned me, I am not ashamed because I know who I've put my hope in. And I am convinced that he, the one who I put my hope in, is able to guard until that day. Paul is probably looking forward to the day where he dies, or even the day of judgment, until that day what has been entrusted to me. In other words, he knows who God is, and he knows what God has done for him. So then the second question is, how is Paul convinced that he's able to guard, that God is able to keep him until that day? If he is experiencing extreme distress because of the gospel, how can he be convinced that it, well, it's all going to work out in the end? Right? That's usually not the message that anybody wants to hear when they're suffering. Well, it'll be all right. Doesn't feel all right. But he says, I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. If you look really quickly at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He talks about, starting in, in Ephesians chapter 1, actually in verse 11, he says, In Christ we've obtained an inheritance that he has given to us. It's been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God is in control of all things, and he has given us an inheritance in salvation. So that He says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. But then he says this, In him you also, not just me, but you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, right? So, so when you placed your faith in him, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And notice what it says in verse 14. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The role of the Holy Spirit in salvation is the Holy Spirit indwells his people and he acts as the seal of salvation. And no one, like when Jesus says that no one can take his followers out of his hands, you go, well, how do I know that's true? Because the Holy Spirit indwells his people and he doesn't let go of his people. He's the guarantee that God will finish what he has started. 
And Paul says, if, if Jesus has started salvation in me, I'm convinced that he's able to guard it. Now, if Jesus is able to finish what he has started, and he's able to guard what we have, not just in this life, but for all of eternity, the next question would be, in terms of suffering for Paul or for anybody else, if God is the one who holds you securely in his hand, regardless of what your circumstances tell you, what do you really have to be afraid of? If you know who you've believed in, and you know he holds you securely regardless of circumstance or situation, and that he will see it to completion, in the words of Scripture, what can man do to me? Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? Can famine or hunger, danger or sword? He said, no. Neither height nor depth, angels nor demons, nor life nor death, nor anything can separate. And, and here's a really encouraging thing about salvation, though. So he says, it's, it's I know who I've believed in. In other words, I know God's character, and I'm convinced that he is able to keep it, he, and God's ability to guard. So God's ability to save, and God's ability to keep, and God's character all within that. Those are not dependent on you and me. Who God is and God's ability are not dependent on you and me. In the same way that your salvation wasn't really dependent on you. You couldn't have done anything on your own to get out of the box. You were dead in it. But God, being great in love, did what? Sent his son while we were still dead in our sins. Christ died for us. We can be bold witnesses regardless of circumstance, not because of who we are and how great we are, but because of who God is and how great he is. And we're not, we're not just telling stories about who we are. We're telling the truth of who God is and what he's done. So then Paul encourages him, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. In other words, Timothy, you're not, you're not free to craft your own message. Stick to the blueprint. Stick to the prototype. Stick to the one message that everything else is built off of. It's the one message built for all people in all places and all times. Stick to the pattern. You and I don't have the liberty or the right to change it. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And then is tagging right back up to verse 12 of, of, I'm convinced that he is able, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And again, is, is that by my strength or by the Holy Spirit? He says, by the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Third member of the Godhead, fully God, indwelling his people, in enabling them to do all that God has called them to do and to be. And then he gives examples. He says, so, so don't be ashamed, don't back away, don't act the coward like most of those who are in Asia turned away, among whom are these two guys who are named. And just a really quick rabbit trail in there. That's the only place in Scripture where Figulus and Hermogenes are named. But the fact that they are named to Timothy in a region where churches have been planted means that they are people that Timothy would recognize. Which probably means that they weren't just obscure people in some 
Backwater church, they were probably prominent leaders within the church that Timothy would know and would recognize. And despite potentially all of their faithfulness in a whole host of other manners, they are remembered when the stakes got high, they became ashamed of the gospel. You and I don't really know where we're at in terms of redemption history. We like to think that it's getting really bad. It seems like it's getting pretty worse. But say Jesus doesn't return for another thousand years. And in the course of events, uh, we we become part of church history. What will future believers in Christ look back on in their study of church history, of churches like ours in this moment of time? Will we be remembered as those who continued to be faithful in the face of whatever adversity and whatever circumstances are coming? Or will we be remembered almost as a footnote as those who decided that it just wasn't worth it and abandoned gospel faithfulness because it was uncomfortable. It's a terrifying thought that you and I, while insignificant as we are, we are stewards of the good news of Jesus right here where we are and everywhere we go. And while Scripture may not contain your name and my name, we serve a God who knows all things and who will to whom each one of us will give an account on that day. And it's not necessarily for the sake of that thought of that account that we ought to be most concerned, but is but maybe that helps us calibrate our thought. On that day, when he is the only thing that matters and everything else has faded away, what will we have done with our time of stewardship of the gospel? Will we be those who were faithful Or will we be those who have shrunken back in fear? Will we be like Figulus and Hermogenes, or will we be like Onesiphorus, who says, May the Lord grant mercy to his household, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Yeah, the idea there of Onesiphorus refreshing him is probably caring for him while he's in prison, because it's first century prison, it's not 21st century prison. It is the family and the friends of a prisoner who provides for his physical needs while he's in prison. And in Paul's most desperate time of need, after planting numerous churches and laboring among many believers, he says, most of them have left me. But here's a guy who earnestly, who is from Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring, he, he left Ephesus and came to Rome and earnestly searched for me until he found me at personal expense and at personal energy, was not ashamed of me. Refreshed me out of his own personal supply. Identified himself with Paul when Paul is a prisoner basically on death row. When he has no idea whether or not doing so means that he will end up right next to Paul. But he had determined ahead of time, like he probably never would have left Ephesus to go to Rome if he goes, I don't know if this is worth it. 
And he probably wouldn't be hunting around in Rome going, do you know where Paul is? Can you help me find out where Paul is? You know, Paul, the preacher of the gospel, the one who tells the good news about who Jesus is. Can you help me find him? If he hadn't determined ahead of time that not just Paul, but the gospel was something worth identifying with. So will you and I identify not just with Paul, but with Jesus and his good news, regardless of circumstance, regardless of consequence? To the best of our ability, we can resolve to do that ahead of time. But by God's grace in the moment of those situations, he alone can give us what we need. But will you be committed to being faithful for what he allows you to speak? Will we rise with a spirit of power and love and self-control? Or will we default to a position of the flesh and live by fear, thinking that we can control our outcome? as we kind of shift focus and we're, we're coming to a time of observing the Lord's Supper together, what we are proclaiming every time we eat and drink together is this good news, that God through Christ has made a way for us to be made right with him, to be brought from death to life. And every time we eat and drink of it, we are proclaiming that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has made a way of salvation for us. And as often as we eat and drink of it, Scripture tells us, we are proclaiming that he will return and he will complete what he has started in his people. And as often as we eat and drink of it together as a church family, we are identifying publicly within ourselves that we are aligned with him. That we are not ashamed of who he is. So this morning, as we come to the table, if there's a thought in us, it's like, I, I am perfectly happy with identifying with him inside of these four walls, but as soon as I go out, like, whew, that gets a little dicey. I would encourage you, take stock of where we are with the Lord before we eat and drink without any thought to what it actually means for what we're carrying with us as we leave the building. We are saying to each and every one of like we're saying to the gathered body of the saints together that we are united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That his life means we have life. That we are dead to sin and now we're alive to Christ. And we're proclaiming that through our actions of taking the cup and the bread together.